In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. When I was in junior high, in gym class, they separated uh, the guys and the girls. Uh, so we had different classes, respectively. And someone had the bright idea when I was in eighth grade that the boys should do a wrestling unit in PE. And it was then that I learned that I'm not just bad at wrestling, but I actually hated wrestling. I found myself um, with no choice but to enter into this activity. And when I'd have to wrestle like someone else in my class, I found myself just wanting to sit down with my opponent and have a conversation. <laughs> you know, just work it out, find a suitable compromise that both of us could agree on. But flipping me around and sticking me to the mat it was just all so primal. But there's one principle of the sport that I learned back then and that continues to fascinate me and I continue to think about uh, frequently, actually. And it's when a player uses the momentum of their opponent to their own advantage. And I don't know if, if this actually has a term. If it does, I can't find it. But two wrestlers can be battling fiercely with all their might and their force is pressing against one another. And then one of them simply switches gears, goes the other way, and uses all the force and energy of their opponent as a counter move. And this principle is used not just in wrestling, it's used in a lot of different sports competitions. In fact, any time that there are two opposing forces, it can be used strategically to great effect, and the spiritual life is no different. I am convinced that it is one of the devil's favorite moves, that rather than simply opposing us, he uses our own momentum against us and to his own advantage. For example, when we sin. When we fall into sin, it is often not the sin itself that does the greatest damage but rather the ensuing guilt and shame and despair and the feelings of helplessness that actually over time will prevent us from confessing our sins, accepting God's forgiveness, moving on with the work he's called us to. The devil loves to exploit those natural feelings of a guilty conscience. We have a guilty conscience for a reason. It's actually a very important part of how we're made. But the devil likes to exploit that guilty conscience and use it to keep us down in the hole, to prevent us from growing in the spiritual life. And let's not forget that the Greek word for devil literally means not just accuser, but false accuser. That is who he is in his essence. He pummels us with false accusations. You're no good. God won't forgive you for that. You're just going to do it anyway, so what's the point? And all of these temptations are above and beyond the actual sin, whatever that might be. And yet, it's these temptations that so often prevent us from moving forward with the healing work of repentance, restoration, and reconciliation with God. So that's one example of how the devil uses our own momentum against us. Another 
is actually when we experience healthy growth and fruitfulness in our spiritual lives. And the Pharisee in today's parable is a perfect example. The Pharisee is actually a very pious man. He keeps strict disciplines of fasting and of tithing. He refrains from grievous sins like adultery and lying and deceit, all of which is very good, all of which is right and good in the eyes of God. So what could the devil possibly do with such a disciplined and obedient man? Use his good works and entice him with the granddaddy of all sins, the sin of pride. The fifth century patriarch Martyrius writes, whoever offers to God sacrifices of praise should be very alert for the ambushes of the evil one. He says, Satan lies in ambush ready to catch us by surprise at the very time of thanksgiving. And the result is that we do not realize that all things belong to God and not to ourselves. At its heart, pride doesn't just elevate the self over God, but at its heart, pride actually replaces God with ourselves. We take the place of God. So instead of trusting in God, we trust in ourselves. Instead of praying to God, we pray to ourselves. Did you notice that St. Luke says that Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous? And did you notice that the Pharisee in the parable doesn't pray to God, but it actually says that he prays with himself? Pride replaces God with the self. But not only that, in so doing, it removes from our hearts the one who is the very source of love. So now, when we fall to pride, not only do we deceive ourselves that we can be like God, but we're actually incapable of truly loving others. Pride begins to compare the self with those around us. Pride compares the self with others as a way of trying to secure ourselves in God's place. We look down on others to create the illusion for ourselves that we're above them. That's what happens when we compare and look down on other people. And the Pharisee demonstrates this in embarrassingly plain fashion. It says he prays with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He looks down on others in order to make himself feel as if he's above them, to perpetuate this illusion of godliness. Pride evicts God from the human heart. And now, void of the source of love, the heart despises the world around it. Notice, it says, Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and what? And despised others. The temptation to pride in the spiritual life is so simple and so subtle. 
and yet its consequences are so powerfully destructive. I mean, all of the benefits of the Pharisees' good works, all of them are wiped out in one fell swoop from his pride. Writing in the fourth century, St. Basil the Great says, the stern Pharisee who in his overweening pride not only boasted of himself, but also discredited the tax collector in the presence of God, made his justice void by being guilty of pride. He says, be on your guard, therefore, and bear in mind this example of severe loss sustained through arrogance. The one guilty of insolent behavior suffered the loss of his justice and forfeited his reward by his own bold self-reliance. Great words of caution for us all. How can we guard against the destruction of pride? By growing in its opposing virtue. Every sin has an equal and opposite virtue. And the opposite of pride is, of course, humility. The word humility is one of my favorite etymologies, meaning not just its definition, but the root of the word, where it comes from. Because the root of the word humility is the Latin word humus, which means earth. It literally means the ground, or on the ground. Humility is a lowliness, having a low view of oneself. If I am on the ground, then what is the perspective of the world around me? Everything else is above me. God, humanity, this is my view of the world. Humility is not self-deprecation. It is a perspective. And humility is what we find exhibited by the tax collector. Now, between these two men, the tax collector is not the obvious choice for the humble man. One would think that it would be the spiritual religious man, but it's not. It's the tax collector. And yet, despite of his reputation, despite his past actions, his heart is full of humility. His eyes are filled with tears of repentance. We're told that Standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector has a true perspective between his relationship with God and those around him. He has not replaced God with himself, but rather has a true understanding of who he is in relationship to God and the world around him. And he is the one, our Lord tells us, who goes home justified. In other words, he is the one who goes home forgiven and in right relationship with God. The great Eastern mystic St. Ephraim the Syrian writes, It is more difficult to confess one's sins than one's righteousness. The tax collector went down more justified than the Pharisee did because of the fact that he was humble. And St. Augustine on this passage comments, he says, it is written, and here he quotes from 1 Peter, it is written, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
the Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the diseases of others. He came to the doctor, who is God, he came to the doctor, it would have been more worthwhile to inform him by confession of the things that were wrong with himself instead of keeping his wounds secret and having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. It is no surprise that the tax collector went away cured because he had not been ashamed of showing the doctor where he felt pain. Humility is what we are called to in all things, following the example of our Lord. I want to share what is one of my favorite, in my view, one of the most powerful um, passages in all of the New Testament regarding the nature of our Lord. It's from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he charges us, he says, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. If anyone, if there's anyone that could rightly be proud, it would be our Lord himself. And yet, in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He humbled himself to death on a cross, and God has highly exalted him. Our Lord prophesies his own death and resurrection in today's parable when he says at the end, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is our calling, to do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in humility to count others better than ourselves. Again, St. Basil writes, Never place yourselves above anyone, not even great sinners, he says. Humility often saves a sinner who has committed many terrible transgressions. And this is, of course, what we see in the tax collector. Humility often saves a sinner who has committed many terrible transgressions transgressions. We can see from this parable that things are not always as they seem, those things that meet the eye. Bishop N.T. Wright says, one cannot tell in the present, in this present world, who God's elect are simply by the outward badges of virtue. Think of the Pharisee. He says, if you want to see where God's final vindication is anticipated in the present, Look for where there is genuine penitence, genuine casting oneself on the mercies of God. Know that we have an adversary who desires to use our momentum against us for his advantage, who wants to take our praises of thanksgiving, 
our offerings to God and tempt us to spiritual pride. And who also wants to take our sin and tempt us to despair, to keep us down in the hole. But rather than replace God with ourselves and despise others, it is far more fruitful for us to count others better than ourselves and to pray without ceasing that prayer of the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.